Hi, this is Hubert's podcast. I'm Hubert. We have Arjun, Frank, and Nikhil from Materialize. Ralph and I are writing a book called Streaming Databases, and we are a at a critical point、um, of the book where we really need to bring in experts like、uh, our group here to bring. Understanding as to to the things that we need to talk about, because I think a lot of the stuff we we're talking, we we will be talking today, isn't talked about in the、uh, ecosystem much at all.、Um, I'd love for you guys to introduce yourself.、Um, let's start with the Arjun yourself. Hi, I'm Arjun Narayan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Materialize. Right, thank you, Frank. So I'm I'm Frank McShay. Also. Uh, co-founder, but not CEO of Materialize. I'm the chief scientist <laughs> and、uh, responsible for some of the streaming data flow stuff that underlies Materialize. I'm Nick Helbenish, CTO here at Materialize, responsible for the engineering side of the product that we're building. Really excited to be here, Hubert. Hey, thanks for having us on. Yeah, I'm really happy that you guys said yes to talk to us.、Um, Honestly, we have a, an ongoing thread on your Slack channel, and、um, there are the, the conversations there are pretty intense. If you have to ask, if you ask me,、um, my first question. We're going to go straight at it, right? Tell me what a data warehouse for operational workloads is. What does that mean? So, the way the way we think about workloads is a distinction between. Workloads that are used in immediate, a human is waiting for the response of the system.、Uh, so, so that those are the ones we call operational versus a analytical workload, which is merely an input towards some future deliberation. Right. So, a good example of an analytical workload is one where you're crunching some numbers, you're preparing a report, and then we're going to sit down and have a meeting for about an hour. You, that meeting could be rescheduled, right? Like you can run the workload overnight, get get the stuff prepared.、Uh, a planning meeting is very much one that uses analytical data, right?、Um, a quarterly plan or a monthly plan or something of that sort. Very different from an operational workload, which might involve humans. It might be automated.、Uh, in the automated case, you could think a classic example is fraud detection, right? Like you want the system to act on the data as soon as it is able to. Uh, because uh, time is of the essence, you could also have humans over here. So you could have a warehouse, a physical one, not a data warehouse, where、uh, you know in a supply chain there are workers who are looking for up-to-date information in order to better do their job. Right?、Uh, there are a lot of these operational workloads that are dependent on analytical information. Uh, so, so data that involves the crunching of numbers could be involved the crunching of a lot of numbers. So, you know, fraud detection is a great example. You know, there aren't really, in theory, signals that you don't want to include. You really want to be able to look over a lot of、uh, signals and data in order to make the best possible fraud detection decision, to both minimize fraud and to minimize false positives. And so, these workloads look similar superficially. In that they involve the crunching of numbers. You could use an OLAP column store. You could use databases that are designed to crunch over a lot of numbers. But because the latency 
uh, the, uh, a, not just the latency, but the end-to-end -end freshness of the, the uh, data is very important. You can't use the same systems that are designed really fundamentally to be optimized for analytics where you don't need to deliver fresh results. So when I hear the word operational, I think like, you know, it's in the operational plane, the, the, like databases that, that are deployed in that realm where where they're being used in an application or or deployed in uh, on like uh, uh, like as a microservice or or, or whatnot. Um, is that what operational means in that definition? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take it to me like how it gets deployed as a microservice. That's mm -hmm. that's maybe a bit more of a detail, but there's there's definitely this dichotomy in um, the data space between operational work and analytic work. Or operational work, you have your business operations. Your you your primary business that you're doing is trying to get certain things done. Okay. If you're running a credit card, fraud is a thing that's part of your business operations. You actually need uh, to have fraud detection as part of delivering your product to the uh, to the user. Um, so it's it's the work that's very much like in the core of your business that is happening moment by moment that you would benefit probably um, from some automated assistance with. You, you know, you could have a whole bunch of really well paid humans scurrying around doing all this this work for you, but um, getting computers uh, involved to do things for you faster, more predictably, more reliably is um, uh, an adventure. The analytic plan, yeah, is just a bit more usually more retrospective work. We did some business. Let's reflect on it. Um, but it's a bit too late to change that business. You know, we want to see what what happened with fraud over the past day, even over the past hour. It's too late to go and fix that fraud, but uh, but you know, worth reflecting on for sure. And most of the analytic warehouses are are aimed at that. They're not they're not particularly fresh. They're not a great way to run your business, or very expensive uh, way to run your business if you want to try to do that. So it sounds like to me, because I'm I'm also looking at a graphic on your front uh, front page of your website that that has value on on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, and it, it it looks like to me that operational means like real time uh, now, you know, or in like seconds or milliseconds, and and, and the value the of of your data starts to degrade as you move towards. Uh, the left here, what I'm seeing. <laughs> we think the freshness is a key piece of it. It doesn't have to be milliseconds or seconds. There's a lot of operational work that does happen in minutes, but certainly other systems really struggle to get freshness down under a second into the millisecond plane. And that's somewhere where materialize has been purpose built. So users get a lot more value out of materialize when they're working with their operational workloads that require seconds. This is, so this is really a, a really important, I think, distinction here. I think we need to call out because you're, you're marrying the idea of operational with real time. So can you, is it best to implement real time uh, workloads on the operational side of, the, of, the, of your data plane? I don't think, I mean, for me, at least personally, I don't think of folks as having real time workloads. They have operational workloads and real time is often a tool you know, is a, a modifier put on top of tools that could help them solve that. But the reason you might want something in real time is because it is part of your operations. Right. Why do you need something right now? It's because yeah, you have a customer waiting on it, or you're about to make a financial transaction 
or not based on this information. So the actual operation of your business relies on it, and that is what draws you potentially to real time if it is a part of your business that needs to react interactively. Some other part of your business might not need to. The fraud stuff, for example, might want to daily update some statistics that it's going to. Yeah, it doesn't need to be real time. It's an important part of your operations, uh, but it doesn't have to be uh, real time in that case. But yeah, the value of, um, or you, you know, you arrive at real time from an operational constraint. Your business needs to do something. It, it feels like that, that the more operational you are, the more consistent your data needs to be. Like there's this cons consistency idea that you, we have to, we have to ensure that the data is very consistent. It's the, the consistency is a, an idea that is really, it's either no one wants to talk about it or they don't know to talk about it, right? It's, we, I, I don't we, see anybody yeah. talking about, I only, I only ever see materialized people talking about consistency. We like well, to talk about consistency. We for sure. are really, so at materialized, we really care about consistency. Uh, we think that your operational workloads absolutely uh, require consistency. I want to acknowledge that this is not the consensus point of view. There are a lot of people who think hey, eventually consistent stuff is fine. Oh. Uh, we've heard this before in other domains. Uh, people have learned some lessons from the NoSQL era. But the important thing that when we say consistency, so materialized provides consistent answers uh, to the inputs that we get. However, if you use eventually consistent systems, it is still possible to get consistent answers if you understand all the possible edge cases and you have put in protections across all of your services. That burden, however, is now on you as the architect. Right, so you can use eventually consistent databases and eventually consistent stream processors. I, I think you're making a mistake because it's really, really hard and you have absorbed a burden that is likely far more challenging than you may realize. It slows down the rate at which you can make code changes because every new change that you make has to reason about the global effects across all of the various systems. And this is why a lot of people end up regretting using eventually consistent stores and databases in their architecture. But absolutely, this is what a lot of people are doing. And we have to acknowledge that they're successful businesses. So it's not, it's not absolutely mandatory. I do think you will regret it if you go down Frank, you had a thought that you said. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the thing I would add to this is that one of the things that you do a bit more with operational work than you do with, say, analytic work is hope to connect and wire up the outputs of your operational systems to actual business actions. And there's a real question about what confidence do you need to have in these results before you connect them to the part of your business that says transfer the money from this account to that account? Is eventual consistency okay when you're moving money around, when you're telling customers, that there's fraud on their account and when you're sending notices to people that they've overdrawn their account and they owe you money do you want that to be eventually consistent i mean that, that's quite I, spooky I, think. I actually think payments are one of the few places where it's actually okay because it's just money like it's commutative uh associative no, you can always you, you can always bound man. it no, yeah no, yeah it, people are losing millions of dollars but it's only just millions of dollars it's much worse in situations 
where you can't fix the issue, right? The, mm. There are certainly domains where it's not merely a question of moving money from one account to another. A good example of this is uh, security, right? Like you, you end if you end up breaching or leaking some stuff that you should not have leaked, it's a much harder restitution than just, oh, just you have a line item saying you have 40 basis points of fraud. We see it in much simpler cases too. We have folks show up and say, what's consistency? Why do I need it? Why do I need it? I don't care about that. And then a week later, why did this email go out? Why did right. I email half my customers saying that there was suspicious activity on their account? And that's the moment, that's the entry point where we say, ah, it's because your data was briefly inconsistent and because you were alerting on it with a freshness of seconds, we sent that alert out for you because your data indicated that was the state of the system. It, yeah. And materialize when you have the end-to-end -end consistency, you have the confidence to know that we're not going to send out that email because the system always moves from one consistent state to another. This, uh, this brings up our chapter six, brings up Jamie Brandon and chapter six. He's, he's your chapter six. That's amazing. He, he's our chapter six in our book and it's a doozy. <laughs> um, that blog post he wrote way back when pays so many dividends. It's, it, it, does. So it does. The just, things we reference. It's really, yeah. If you're using the, 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 the bank use case, you know, yeah. it, it resonates with people when you're, the numbers don't add up. Exactly. Should we, um, should we, should we, can we briefly summarize uh, the blog post, Hubert, for the audience? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so basically, this blog post, it, it, it brings up a use case where you have a, multi, a set of accounts, let's say 10, I think it was. And they are they all start from the very, very beginning. They all have a balance of zero, right? And randomly, they, it, it deprecates from one account to, to another account and, adds, and uh, credits it to another account. And, and then that continues with all these transactions over and over again. The idea is that if you add, if you sum up all these accounts, they would add up to zero, right? So if they, they all start up to zero, uh, start off as zero, they, you sum that as zero. So if account one uh, deprecates minus one, and you add plus one to account two, so that that adds up to zero. So everything is is zero at 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 all times. That's where the crux of the consistency is tested, right? At any point of time, is there a moment where that some of that value of those, all these accounts ever goes above or below zero? It should never. It should only ever be zero. In fact, more so if you are if you are um, consistently testing it, right? That that you don't emit an event telling me that it's ever changed, even if it's zero. If you emit multiple zeros, you're you know you're. You're telling me that there's, there's no there's you're telling me that there's no change every, every time if you if you only admit once that's a true that's a true uh um behavior of 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 uh you know there's there hasn't been a change right right there was never an event that caused the sum to be anything besides zero so why would you ever tell me anything besides that initial zero exactly um so we've actually tested this with some other stream processors i don't want to call them out right now um, but it, Jamie does, so go to <laughs> That was several years ago, though. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's some new players on the market that also don't get zero. 
Well, well, there's there's a piece of technology, and I think Frank has a lot to do with it, and I'd love for him to talk more about it. It's called differential uh, data flow, uh, which runs on top of timely data flow. And 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 Ralph and I are are continually talking about how does differential data flow keep things consistent. I mean, I, yeah, I can give you a five minutes about that or so, or, or how yeah. is that? That helpful. So That's perfect. Differential data flow is uh, built on top of a stream processor called timely data flow, but in principle, you could build it on top of lots of different stream processors. Uh, what differential data flow does is it has an opinion about a data model. It says, uh, yes, you could send lots of things around your stream processor, but actually, we're going to try to only send information about changes in collections. So each of the little arcs that you might see in your stream processor speak about a collection. And they communicate along that that arc uh, changes to the to the collection. All of these changes, so this, this change might be like add this record, remove that other record, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all of them come with very uh, explicit times attached to them, uh, and these times are when the change is meant to happen, not not when it did happen, or, but like the world needs to be as if the change happens exactly at this uh, at this moment. Typically, this is a bit uh, of a, uh, a bit of a look back. Like you know, the input did change at some time. Those changes flowed through the system, bearing that time, the time that the change happened, and they sort of rendezvous, if you will, at the output of your bit of data flow with all of the changes that happened at exactly the same time, uh, with that time recorded in the data, uh, taking effect atomically. So a person looking at the output of the system doesn't see the internal transitions between receiving seven different updates that all bear the same timestamp. They only see the one transition from don't yet have those seven to ah, cool, all of those seven have showed up. You know, my count went from zero to seven in one step as opposed to trickling upwards uh, because uh, which might be weird if you had within a transaction in your input inserted seven records into a table and then ended your transaction. It would be really weird to see all the intermediate states unacceptable. You know, we don't want to do that, and arguably, no one wants to see that either. Um, and be a you know acid violation to uh, to reveal intermediate states. One framing of time that I really liked that Frank proposed at me years ago is revisions. We talk about logical time; that's the term of art. When you look at the academic paper behind this and the related papers, but revisions often gives people a better mental model for what time means in differential. You start at revision one of a collection, and then later you have revision two, and then maybe you skip revision three, and now you have revision four. You never wanna see revision three in the output. It was never published, it never existed. You went straight from revision two to revision four. But I find that talking about revisions instead of time often gives anyone the right mental model for what time is in differential data flow because it's more of a logical concept than the physical wall clock concept that we're all used to in our day-to-day -day lives. So so that brings up the idea of like event time versus processing time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, does differential data flow work on processing time or event time or can you t convert it? 100% event time. Yeah, okay. There's no processing time in differential data flow. In fact, it gets very stressed out if you have non-deterministic computation. 
such mm. as would be based on, on processing time. And that's limiting. It means that as a stream processor replacement, it's not perfect. You know, when you're writing a stream processor, you may want to have uh, wall clock time-based actions just to flush some buffers or something like that. But in the same way that um, generally, like in SQL, for example, you try to get these declarative statements where your query describes what's going to happen on the data independent of what moment you ran it at or something. Differential data flows is similarly opinionated that you'd like a description of what you're going to do that computes the correct answer independent of how you happen to run it. Right. Uh, and let me go get back to Jamie's use case, uh, the, the, the bank. Um, I feel like it is at the moment of the join, when you're joining both the credits and the debits together, is where consistency needs to be true, right? Um, it's one there... of the hardest places for most systems to maintain consistency. It's funny, when you live in differential land, every mm -hmm. operator needs to maintain consistency. Joy doesn't uh, feel that special, but relative to other systems, absolutely. That's where you see them often violate consistency. What, the... where, what other places can you, do you see like critical places where consistency can break down? Um, there's, well, within operators, uh, another classic one is union or accept all in SQL. So uh, operators that have multiple inputs are a moment where the two inputs might have been running at different speeds, might be just ahead or just behind another one. And if you're careless at those moments, you might uh, line up the data incorrectly and reveal, essentially put the updates out of order. If, if, if you were thinking about the updates as flowing in order along these edges, it's a moment for the updates to be out of order. And uh, yeah, even, even just a union or something like that, like we've got some of this, some of that, and I'm putting them together can already be pretty weird. Uh, if if you don't have a system that provides consistency, it's is what differential data flow is doing. Is it basically a temporal join, or? Um, yes, it's a particular type of temporal join. Um, I don't. I'm happy to go as deep as you like. It is not an as of join. Uh, that's that's different. Um, it's more like a, a join that uses uh, deeply multi-versioned collections, um, which. Uh, yeah, I don't. Maybe I'll 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 stop there. And uh, it's okay. it's very time aware join for sure. Um, but to be honest, mechanically, it's not that different. Implementation is not that different from your conventional uh, SQL join. But it is mindful when it matches two records together about essentially if you have two records that have different versions on them, v1 and and v2, we can match them up the same way a join would normally do it. But their result, the the match record only first appears in the output at the maximum of those two times, right? If, if V1 is less than V2, then at V1, ah, there isn't a thing at V2 yet. There's nothing to produce this output yet. So when does it happen? It happens at the maximum of V1 and V2. And the join operator is, is just sufficiently savvy to realize that these fields are timestamps. I should take their maximum as I, as I transit the data. I see. Um, Hubert, does that match your definition of a temporal join? It's uh, so other streaming systems implement different, you know, temporal joins differently. But the idea is just you know joining by time, right? Uh, and the way you, the way you implement that is really your own. But there's a concept of like matching up the timestamps before you actually make that join. Else, you know, if you 
you're joining just by primary key, you, you may be joining it at a, at a, a at the wrong moment of time, and it, hence consistency could break down, right? One of the things that's different, and I don't know if this is helpful, is that a lot of other systems do do temporal joins, as you say, by trying to line up the timestamps. Mm -hmm. So you might have, they often have windows in them, for example, you might have- Right, it's fuzzy. Windows. Yeah, and things have to be in the same window or a nearby window. One of the things that's nice about how differential data flow does things with updates is uh, that you don't need windows at all. So you can you can have a collection that's been live for the past year. Your, your customer database may experience changes, but you might have a customer whose data have not changed for you know, six months or so like that. The join will still find the record. Right? It's the join with you know the customer from six months ago and the new activity today. They'll find each other. The maximum of the two times, which will be right around now, you know, the event uh, and customer update times right around now, will be produced in the output, and it'll be as if that update saw the rolled up version across all time oh. of that database, rather than the time windowed version of the data. And this, this is pretty powerful because although windows are are cool, there are these moments where people essentially reject window. Like my customers are not windowed, right? They they go back all their time. Events might be windowed. That's cool, but there's a lot of things that aren't, and forcing folks to use Windows can be very stressful for business logic. It leads. Oh, go ahead, Arjun. This is uh, another key thing about differential data flow that uh, the reason we're able to do this is because differential data flow is very adept at handling large amounts of state and keeping that state up to date at low latency as these changes come through the system but without falling over just because it has a lot of state to do. A lot of other stream processors limit, limit the time window on which you can do a join primarily to limit the amount of state that could be in flight at any oh. given moment in time. Uh, you could absolutely set the window to be from zero to infinity and then everything will slow to a crawl on some of these other systems uh, and differential data flow will not. Uh, and that's primarily a performance characteristic that enables this sort of behavior, which to me has the only sane semantics. Uh, what, uh, so when we go to to Jamie Brand's use case again, um, Ralph and I were talking the other day about like, what it's really important to be consistent at all times. Is there a moment where the, you know, you don't need to be consistent? Um, and, and I feel like so some of these other streaming systems that we tested in chapter six, right? If you stop the stream, they, 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 they return to zero, right? They, 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 they eventually make become. They consistent. are eventually consistent. Exactly. So that. Which leads, if you stop the stream, you're basically batching at that point. If you're waiting for consistency and, and then and then and then forwarding that re result back, you know, to your analytics, then you're you're you switch to batching. Um, but I wanted to ask: Is that is consistency still a necessity if you're doing fact to dimensional joins? So let's, let me elaborate on this. In in the uh, in the credit and debit in J Jamie Brandon's use case, these are two streams of fact data, you know, right? So it's one's a credit, one's a debit transaction. You're joining two fact uh, streams. Um, consistency is definitely required at that moment, where because you, you make sure you have to 
you're you're ju performing a, a, some math, and then you know consistency consistency is really important there. If you're just enriching a stream, like a fact data comes in, and you have some dimensional data probably from a data warehouse, and you're enriching that that stream with that data, is consistency still required? Absolutely. I mean, you have use cases where uh, you are enriching some slowly changing dimensions. A good one of this would be customer address on file, right? You have your customer address on file, never changes, but the moment at which it changes is a crucial moment in which your subsystems and your order processing needs to be. So if you're using this for an order processing system, customer, and I've done this, I logged into a website that I hadn't logged into for three years. Everything was out of date, updated my address, updated my payment card, bought a thing, moved on, right? Like that, that, that those things happen in very quick succession. Uh, you certainly need to use that up-to-date information. Now, if this was a uh, fintech payment platform, you'd probably be running your fraud detection system. You want to make sure that all of those changes check out uh, with the latest up-to-date information because everything has, all of these dimensions have changed right before I entered some crucial facts. I agree. Another, I'm going to throw out another good example for consistency too, and and you can take it or leave it. But uh, in database land, like in stream processing land, I don't, you know, you wire a bunch of things together and it's great fun. Um, in database land, you have query optimization, you have things like uh, referential integrity where foreign keys need to exist. Uh, all of these things go absolutely out the window if you just eh, kind of line up the data, right? So if you're in a data warehouse and you have a uh, very carefully normalized schema, you have uh, yes, yeah, slowly changing dimension type two uh, setups. Th things are supposed to be just so, and your queries are correct only as a consequence of the data actually being just so. If if you perform some utter joins with relations that yeah, they're supposed to have primary keys, but not really at the moment, you can get crazy results. Uh, you know, query transformations aren't going to be correct. Um, you know, just sort of the modern database query optimizer is not going to be correct on your uh, on your system. And maybe that's fine if you're still the one stringing together bits of wire uh, to make to make these things work out. But if, if you're hoping to have sort of the the modern grown-up database experience uh, with with the product, these things need to be true. Like you, the transformations you're making to people's queries are only correct uh, if certain things are are equal to each other, not just like eh, sort of kind of the same. Right. Let's uh, uh, switch up a little bit. There was a. Uh... A graphic that I sent over to Nikhil of the data planes, right? There's three data planes that we had identified. There's the operational data plane, which which where you guys reside. There's the analytical data plane, which where your data warehouses would be, and then a your streaming data plane, which is uh, your data movement uh, data plane. There is becoming a bit of an overlap. If you think of like a Venn diagram, there's overlaps across across all three data or data planes where hybrid system or hybrid databases are starting to materialize is one of them. It's a hybrid operational database and hybrid streaming uh, uh, streaming system or stream processor. Likewise, HTAP. Right, HTAP is both has row and columnar based 
um, storage. And then the last hybrid database would be a streaming stream processor with, with OLAP capabilities, right? Um, and then in the middle, there is a section where like I, I've labeled labeled next generation where everybody tries to kind of converge converge to right um and I, I obviously i see you guys there at the bottom left hand corner where you guys are an operational database with streaming capabilities or real-time capabilities and 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 with the operational workloads or the data warehouse operational workloads uh your go-to-market theme it's it's it really talks about how you could do some of these workloads on the operational side, which in that sense is really, really close to the user or really close to the application. Hence you're by default real time and you're acting it or acting on data as they um, occur uh, on operational uh, systems. If you needed to in insert like a like historical data within your operational data warehouse how would you do that uh sorry so you are retrospectively realizing that you need historical data or or you want to yeah. describe business logic that involves uh historical data well, let's, yeah let's say like i write a new application i need some historical data um how would i pre present that through an operational data warehouse yeah so i mean there's there's a few ways. Um, I mean, you know, the first first question to be to be sure is, are, you know, do you certainly need it in your operational layer? Let's imagine yes, because might as well, and that's fun. Uh, no, but uh, you, you load up data. So one of the things that's nice about um, you can say differential data flow and materialize relatively soon um, is that the updates that it retains are not simply about now plus some things going to the future. They can go back in time, also. Oh. Um, so you're able to uh, maintain, for example, a, a snapshot at the beginning of time and all of the historical diffs that have gone on since then. And uh, this is totally fine. It's legitimate to do. If, if you were to do this in materialize at the moment, we would actually have a fairly strong opinion and say, uh, I'm sorry, it is, it is currently uh, November 17th. Oh. Your data didn't exist at November 16th. Uh, too bad. Um, there, are, there are places in the code that we can go. You know, as soon as we want to reach out from really supporting operational in-situ um, action business business logic to a bit more historical uh, data processing, there's a, a very clear switch that we flip uh, in materialize that, that does that. I would say at the moment, if you want to show up with rich, deep historical data and do historical data processing, at the moment, we would chew you away and say, uh, you know, you're talking about an analytic uh, workload. Okay. That, that being said, people do have hybrid workloads that they're running in materialize. We've got folks who are you know, five years old historical data. Um, but if if you try to use it as operational data blindly, it's expensive. So uh -huh. you want to think a little bit about, ah, okay, okay, it's five years old. Am I really expecting four years and 39 days ago to change in an instant? No, okay, that stuff's pretty locked down actually. So how do we uh, place it and materialize, but not force materialize to continually listen for the slightest possible change that could have happened in deep historical uh, historical times. And that's a bit of wrangling's a hybrid batch and streaming execution mode, which fortunately materializes a differential data flow that's built on and materials are able to, to do. Um, it's the same batch and streaming is the same. It's the same system. So uh, it's 
Good at both of them. Yeah, it's a it's a recurring theme in our in the book of uh, converging systems where things are starting to come together as with technology. In fact, in fact, um, an overall theme of the book that we're writing is a play on Martin Kleppen's turning a database inside out. We're actually doing the reverse, right? We're taking streaming components that are that inherit from database features, bringing that back into the database and keeping it there and have that be, you know, have that database experienced to stream processing. Yep. Is that is that how it should have been <laughs> all along? Yeah, definitely. Or at least uh, it, it, turning a database inside out is a great way to think about the mechanics of how you might use a stream processor. But if you think about the value proposition to the users, databases are much more valuable than a hard drive is, mm -hmm. right? Like they do a lot for you. And uh, what they do is, is provide you know quite a lot of value by introducing structure that teams of people can rely on, um, you know, making sure that when you show up at work tomorrow, things aren't gonna be totally on fire. Uh, you know, there'll be an explanation for what you're looking at. You'll be able to fix things. Uh, just organizations prefer to uh, work on database-shaped things as opposed to a database turned inside out where you have access to a bunch of SSDs and CPUs and good luck. Mm -hmm. uh, mechanically, it might be helpful to think of things that way, uh, especially if you're trying to learn about, about these things. But the product that people want to consume looks like a database it, it um, for so many reasons. But, but yeah. And the way I would put it is, if you are using lower level tools, you as an as a team operating all of these tools together are still on the hook for providing all of these, uh, you know, quality of life improvements, guarantees, uh, and all of the structure upwards, right? And so it's a question of, are you collectively as a team absorbing some of the responsibilities to deliver on an ongoing basis and maintain, or are you relying upon a system that does this for you, enabling you to do other stuff or run leaner or do more or whatever it is, is your actual business priority. So it's it, 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 this responsibility doesn't go away. Right? It's, uh -huh. it's, it, it has to be delivered. So I have an application. It's got Postgres. I'm using Postgres in the back. Should I swap that out with Materialize or do I keep that Postgres and um, have Materialize live by you should not swap it out. There is a very core, um, very important responsibility that OLTP databases do that Materialize does not do, uh, which is transaction contention and resolution. So a good way to think about this is you might have a large number of contending transactions, some of which you want to commit, but all of which cannot commit. A good way to think about this is your ticket master, you're selling the next batch of ERAS tour tickets. There's 100,000 seats that you're gonna sell. There's 5 million people logging in and trying to sell them. You cannot sell 100,001 tickets. You are going to have an issue, a customer happiness satisfaction issue. You have lots of these contending transactions hammering your database. This is something that OLTP databases are very well designed for. Postgres is decent at this. There are others that are even better. Uh, you know, take take some some, but this is a core OLTP database competency that you cannot do today, 
in anything that's not an OLTP system. You can absorb this at the application level, right? You could do some kind of event sourcing where you say, yeah. I am, in fact, my data model contains attempted purchases upon that, that get logged into the stream. And then I'm going to do some later resolution after the fact that decides in stream processing logic what succeeds and what doesn't. And then I am going to have some other stream that contains the list of events that succeeded and then some other event stream that says the events that failed and things like that. But you are absorbing the burden and complexity of transaction contention and transaction resolution in your microservices architecture. Uh, you might want to think about that, whether you want to do that, mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you need to do things like foreign key lookups, you need to do those consistent, you need to do reads that are consistent with the writes. So you might have you know, a whole bunch of read uh, statements that have to happen atomically with the decision whether you commit or abort your transaction. These are all things that OLTP databases have really, really lived and breathed and improved upon over 30, 40 years. Okay. You can't do that trivially. So, okay, so I switched up my application. So I'm, I'm using Postgres and I have Materialize on the side um, reading from that Postgres database. Mm -hmm. Do I change my application to only send writes to Postgres and reads to Materialize? Ye you can send some of your reads to materialize. You cannot send those reads that you wish to transactionally read from and atomically use in your write path, right? So your writes are not all blind writes to Postgres. Sometimes a foreign key lookup, for instance, cannot be outsourced to materialize because you wish to do that foreign key read in Postgres atomically at the same timestamp as the commit or abort logic for your write, right? So begin transaction, read a bunch of stuff, and then choose to do the write in Postgres or not, and then commit. All of those reads have to happen in Postgres. It's only those reads that do not have pending or dependent writes on them that you can outsource to materialize. That's a large fraction of the reads. Most of your reads in typical applications 90% of your reads don't contain any writes in them. Absolutely shift all of them to materialize. Make them as complex as you want. Uh, make those materialized views, but you cannot transactionally read from those materialized views and do a write to Postgres. Like materialize is starting to feel like a really nice complement uh, to, to an OLTP database right? for use cases where or more complex uh, queries that you want to be able to run or or taking load off the primary or the OLTP uh, database. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a nice way to supplement uh, your, your transactional database, right? Yes, and what we see too is it's not just one transactional database. You don't have just one Postgres in your application anymore. You have 10 teams and they each have their own RDS instance. And every now and then, they need to join together results from their two different teams to display to the user. And Materialize gets more and more valuable the more of these upstream sources you integrate. You also probably have five SaaS vendors, 10 SaaS vendors, 100 SaaS vendors that you integrate with for various pieces of your application. And those are also not in Postgres, but you can 
CDC those SaaS vendors data into Materialize. And then your applications can finally join together the data from all of your transactional databases and all of your SaaS vendors data streams as well. This is for what it's worth, why it's operational data warehouse framing as opposed to just operational database or something like that. That The intent really is to call out the opportunity to bring together lots of operational data. Um, you're not going to put it all back into your Postgres instance. Uh, you just don't have that opportunity. But what a data warehouse, a conventional cloud data warehouse has been really good at is co-locating a lot of heterogeneous data and allowing people to access it together for the first time. And we just think people should be able to do that with operational data as well, writing their operational logic in SQL uh, rather than yeah, a tangle of, of microservices. Yeah, I think that's, that's the main point. So that you basically try to move out several microservices. So you want to do some more database work <laughs> on various sources of data. And that, that's, that's um, I mean, many vendors do not understand this. So they, there's lots of tools which we have also looked into, which build materialized views or in, incremental view maintenance on top of Postgres. Or there's Snowflake with new streaming stuff. There's MongoDB with some stream processing tools. And all of these, they are only serving one vendor, one database. and I think that's so hard to understand for people that um, you have more scale, you have more databases, you have more data sources, and it's just and that's so hard to get into people's minds. I, I feel <laughs> just and, and this is this is why people today fall into this anti-pattern of doing operational work off of their analytical cloud data warehouse. Because it yeah, is the way out for them because it's the, the only way out they see. Yeah, exactly. it's the only place today, realistically, where you can join a whole, you can join all of your data in one spot. And the problem is that in order to refresh and have up to date or as close to live data on your cloud data warehouse, it's horrendously expensive to run your virtual warehouse 24 7 in a hot retry loop, redoing all of your ETL workloads. I mean, that's fundamentally how you run up your cloud data warehouse bill to, you know, three times or five times or 10 times larger than what you expected it to be, is you are rerunning all of your ETL processes in a hot loop every hour in order to serve an operational use case. Or worse, if you connect up uh, your cloud data warehouse to user actions. If there's actual, you know, like a person clicks on a thing in their app and that spins up, I mean, this this is, hopefully everyone has agreed, no, don't ever think about doing that. But if that's what you need to do, if, if you need to do fraud processing in response to user behavior, having that connect to your, uh, uh, to your Cloud Data Warehouse bill is, uh, is terrifying. This one's for Frank. If anybody would were to <laughs> try to use timely data flow or, or differential data flow themselves, is it too hard? <laughs> I, I looked at their code. It looks pretty complicated, and 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 people have told me uh, uh, it, it'll take you months to learn. Is this something? Is there an easier way to the get to get started with a differential data flow yourself? Um, there are there are other easier ways. We have uh, I think actually Matelas has a blog post about an easy introduction to differential data flow written not by me. So, which I think that's one of the first steps is like find someone who actually does, isn't quite as fascinated with it as I am, and have them distill it down to what are the actual minimal set of concepts that you that you need. Uh, this is Ruchira Kaitan 
uh, wrote this and it's, uh, you know, some amount, I, I would check that out and get a handle on it. The, the number of concepts in differential data flow, uh, absolutely, it's drinking from the fire hose if you just open up the repository and look at it mm -hmm. because it blends together so many different things all at the same time um, because you might as well, like why, why build three things that are bad uh, when you could build one thing that's that's really good. But but if you're only interested in one aspect of it, yeah, indeed, you're, you're faced with uh, a whole bunch of horrible concepts like monoids and multidimensional time and um, things like that. What I would recommend to folks is don't try to learn Rust and differential data flow at the same time. If you can learn Rust independently of differential data flow, when you come to differential data flow, you already have all of that context. There are also, as Frank was saying, ways to use differential data flow without learning Rust. But if you know neither, don't try to learn both at the same time. Differential <laughs> data flow is not a good way to onboard onto Rust. <laughs> hey, thanks for that. Um, and, and lastly, um, what's next for you guys? What work? What what? How can anybody get started with uh, with materialized and um, and uh, yeah? Well, what can we find you next time? Yeah, so you know, Materialize is live. You can go to materialize.com, sign up for an account. Uh, we have a interactive playground as well, where you can play around with some live data if you're not bringing your own data, um, and check out some Materialize views that live update. Uh, and I would encourage everyone listening to go to materialize.com and sign up for an account for a trial or a playground account and uh, check it out for themselves because it's really exciting. It's uh, uh, you get to see all the power of data that is changing and views that are updated and pushed to your terminal. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Great. Thanks, guys. We have, a lot, we have a lot in store, too, in terms of getting data into Materialize faster and letting you work with more types of data in Materialize. Like Frank was saying, we have a lot of hybrid workloads in Materialize today. We're going to make that better and better. So the more batch data that you have, the more you can bring that into materialize without it blowing out your bill uh, make the the cost of that batch data cheaper in materialize and historical data letting you bring five years of history with five years of granularity so the future is bright for materialize we're really excited about what we've got today but materialize in six months or a year is going to be an absolute powerhouse of a system it's the place we want you to bring all of your business data run all of your business operations. We want it to be a load-bearing piece of every company's data architecture. Love it, you guys. Thanks so much for joining me and Ralph. Um, I learned a lot from you guys and it's um, you're a lot less intimidating than I thought, honestly. <laughs> we don't bite. <laughs> well, we're really excited about the, the book y'all are writing. It's yeah. so much fun to watch the industry as a whole start to tackle some of these hard concepts and make them approachable for other folks. So it's really good news for us that you're out there educating people about what the current lay of the land is and what makes materialize and some of the newer generation systems special, how they can make people's lives better. Yeah, I appreciate that, Nikhil. Um, till next time, I'll reach out in case you want to have this conversation again. I think.